Hey everybody, welcome back to the Four Pillars of Life podcast. I am your host, Bobby Bazran. On this week's episode, I have a very special guest. Just by doing research and finally meeting him in person, I can tell that he's such a kind, genuine, pure-hearted individual. Please help me welcome politician and member of parliament, Randeep Sarai. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, pleasure to be here and uh, pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to learn more about your journey and a lot about politics. So let's just dive into it. What made you get into politics? Um, I always had a good experience, I would say, with politicians. Uh, when I was younger, uh, my dad was involved in the local temple at the Gordora, and uh, he used to invite politicians whenever it was election time or otherwise, uh, give them their issues of their community, and then vice versa, they would tell their platforms and they would speak and they would sometimes endorse a certain candidate or a certain party based on that. So I always had a, uh, you know, I was kind of a... a Seeing politicians, uh, they used to come to our house as well, neighborhood MLAs, MP, MPs, uh, mostly city councillors, uh, those type of likes. And then when I came across, uh, when I was, I think, 16, I was uh, starting to do house designs and it was like a hobby. Actually, it was actually before I even did house designs, I, we were building our house and uh, Burnaby was changing our bylaws. And I went to a town hall meeting and it was, uh, it was a pretty heated uh, town hall meeting, kind of old <laughs> versus new, uh, I would say, uh, newer immigrants, larger homes versus uh, some of the uh, World War II veterans in their homes, and they didn't want the bigger houses. And uh, so I had some political uh, experience there watching them, and I made some suggestions. I went up to go speak, and I was only, I think, 15 and a half or 16, and I went to wow, get some... young. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool. And I went up, and they wouldn't let me speak at first. And then the clerk uh, said, you're too young. And uh, the mayor interjected and said, no, it doesn't matter how old uh, someone is in my city, they, they're allowed to speak. So I got this little standing ovation from uh, from the crowd. <laughs> I got pumped and I well went deserved. up to speak. And um, uh, anyways, I, I gave some suggestions on that I think how it can moderate the difference between the the uh, new generation and older generation, larger homes versus smaller homes, how you can mitigate the factors. And the mayor actually listened to a lot of them in council. And I think like nine out of my 10 recommendations got adhered to, and there's still the bylaws today. And wow. so- I was like, hey, if you actually convey your message powerfully and with enough support from the community to politicians, they're not these people that are bad, that just are trying to, uh, you know, control the world or anything. They're actually, they want to solve problems and they'll listen to you. And then the second time, I think, was when a lot of young South Asian youth had died from gang violence, uh, over 100 at that point. Now, it's, it's a lot more, but that was in the early 2000s. Um, uh, Herb Dollywall and Wally Opal had asked me uh, to, and, and some other community groups, to put community organizations together and find out what resources the community needs, like it should not be happening. And do we need provincial uh, resources, federal resources? Is it a lack of funding? Is it the community's fault? What is it? And one of the things we came out was uh, that we needed an integrated gang task force. There used to be uh, Surrey at its own gang task force, Vancouver at its own. Uh, Burnaby had its own, Richmond had its own. And when a gangster from Surrey did something in Vancouver, it was like, oh, is the Vancouver guys going to chase the Surrey guys or the Surrey guys chasing them? And what you saw is these pauses and lack of communication left them to only really kill each other and not getting arrested. Um, so that the same thing, I, we, we created this South Asian uh, societies of lower mainland, pulled together, uh, advocated to Rich Coleman, uh, to do this. Uh, and lo and behold, he, he announced a $110 million integrated gang task force, uh, which helped curb that level of violence. So that's kind of my beginning of how I got into politics. And then my wife uh, worked for John Cretchen as a writer. I got introduced to the liberal, federal liberal world. Um, and then Cretchen, uh, sorry, uh, Justin Trudeau asked me to run in 2015. And I ran here and the rest is, uh, rest is history, I guess. Yeah, in 2015, you had a massive accomplishment where you got elected as a member of parliament for the Surrey Centre District. How did that make you feel? I was very, I was very honoured, very humbled. It was a, a long journey. I had kind of been involved in politics since 2000, 2000 roughly. And so uh, to be actually becoming a member of parliament was very humbling and very, it was a big wave. It was a lot of support. Um, I had a great um, set of volunteers and team that really band together, spread my word, uh, put up signs for me, uh, gave me advice on how to door knock and how, what to say, uh, engaged on the issues that were important to people that lived in Surrey. And so 
I think the response was equally as uh, as strong as my volunteers and uh, community support. So uh, we won very handily, and it was the first time a Liberals ever actually won in this riding. Really, and uh, subsequently, it's the I think I'm the only one who's ever won from the same party uh, two and now three times in a row. It, it wow. always switches. It it's been kind of conservative NDP, conservative NDP, so or reform. It's been independent once as well. Uh, so it's never actually had the same person from the same party win consecutively. Uh, uh, so that's uh, been a good accomplishment. I'm pretty proud of the community. People, uh, people like what you do. Yeah, they seem to be liking what yeah. I do, yes. For people that don't know, what is the role of a member of parliament? A good question. Uh, so member of parliament, uh, there's two roles. There's a community role that you do in uh, your constituency, which is uh, heavily involves uh, um, dealing with immigration matters of, of, of community members or new immigrants or people here on work permits. It involves uh, helping people with their pensions, uh, uh, EI claims. So sometimes any, any federal aid agency, sometimes there's roadblocks uh, they can't get through or documentation. So those are the kind of the regular uh, day-to-day issues that when we're in our constituency. And then it's also engaging with the community, uh, attending community events, uh, uh, learning the requests and needs of the community. Uh, what is needed, and then advocating for those. And so that's where it kind of takes you to Ottawa. So the Ottawa part is taking the issues you have from your community, conveying them to the ministers or the or the prime minister, and in, in, depending on the case, and, and pushing for those issues, saying this is what's important to people in Surrey Centre or in my riding. And then there's also community uh, MP roles there. You sit on committees uh, for myself. I'm the chair of the Justice Committee, and I also sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So that looks at all the legislation that comes in relating to that. So if it's foreign affairs legislation or international development legislation, you study that in there. If it's justice, any bills, legal bills, uh, they get they have to be studied and a recommendation or comments be made on them. And then in between, um, the committee study topics on their own, whatever it may be. It may be the war in Ukraine right now. We might study that uh, for for foreign affairs for justice. It might be uh, a previous bill that was required to be studied again, or um, uh, a current issue that's strong, whether it's uh, uh, cannabis, whether it's uh, uh, prostitution or uh, sex work, or whether it's uh, criminal sentences, mandatory minimums, those type of things would be studied there. So that's your kind of roles there. Uh, On top of that, it's attending question period. Um, And the roles differ a little bit. If you're in opposition, you're kind of coming up with questions to target the uh, government. When you're in government, you're looking at ways to address those questions and to answer them. And in that case, the front bench does most of that. That's the ministers that answer the questions. So, um, and then there's a lot of lobbying that happens, and the lobbying in a good way, I'd say. So, all the stakeholder groups, so from dairy farmers to uh, um, uh, you know uh, longshoremen to any you, any stakeholder you could put environmental stakeholders. Anyone you can imagine goes to Ottawa, they meet with MPs, they try to uh, lobby or push for their initiatives, yeah. and you've got to take their input and, and evaluate it and then move forward with that. So yeah. that's kind of the life of an MP. It's a lot of travel, though, for an yeah, MP definitely. from the West. It's uh, about 18 hours every week uh, between wow. your drive, airport. Uh, and where are you traveling to? Ottawa? Ottawa, yeah. It's always, wow. uh, so for me, typically I leave kind of uh, two, three o'clock uh, from Vancouver. Yeah. Land in uh, one one thirty in the morning, uh, Monday morning in uh, in Ottawa, and wake up and and kind of work away uh, the whole oh. day Monday, and then come back Friday mornings. I usually leave there at eight uh, and and get here by ten, and then meet with constituents kind of from uh, uh, eleven till six seven o'clock, and then then the it's, it's, Surrey's a very vibrant place, so there's always <laughs> there's always events. There's in always the evening, something, yeah. Always something. So we we tend all those events, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much your. So and, you're in Ottawa Monday till Friday. Yeah, pretty much uh, four out of every five weeks. So wow. every fifth week, uh, like this week, is a constituency uh, break week. They call yeah. it. So we work in our constituency. So this week, we'll I'll be able to go visit and meet other stakeholders. Uh, but right. the uh, three to four weeks before that, you have to go. Some stay there, some don't travel back every weekend. I do. I have young kids and uh, always like coming family, back to man. see the family. And yeah. I also want to see my constituents. Uh, yeah. I think they have a lot of needs. And if I wait four weeks, it's sometimes tough. Uh, but but different MPs operate differently. When you go there, where do you stay? Uh, so we have two choices. Um, uh, a lot of people, uh, the, I'd say the 
Quebec MPs and the Ontario MPs, they usually get a hotel uh, because they usually come in the morning of. They, they don't have to come the night before. They come Monday morning. Uh, MPs from anywhere farther, they usually rent a condo. So uh, I rent a condo there and I have a place to stay there. So that works out better. Um, the ones that are uh, closer, they either have a hotel. So the choice is yours to have a hotel or a condo. I ask because if you're there so much, might as well buy a place. Yeah, some people do buy. I would say about uh, 5 to 10% of the MPs do own a place. So they've bought bought their own places there. I just uh, feel like it's kind of jinxing yourself. So like, uh, what if you don't get elected again? So that's, that's just my little superstition on that. Yeah, so you I, never know. Yeah, yeah. So as a member of parliament, do you guys have a seat in the House of Commons? Yes, yep. So you get a, a designated seat, uh, uh, your little name tag on the side. It moves around sometimes slightly, uh, uh, depending on when they have... Uh, New members get elected, somebody becomes an independent, uh, uh, some changes, say, in the parliamentary secretaries. But generally, your area where you're sitting goes by uh, seniority and then alphabetical. So, uh, yes, you get your seat, and it's, uh, it's an honor to be there, uh, a very privileged honor, yes. So as a member of parliament, you're allowed to push through motions, correct? Yes, yep. Could you describe what a motion is? Sure. So there's two things. Private members' bills is what they call them, or an MPs, and they, an MP... Um, there's a lottery right after an election and the lottery will give you a number. So the 338 MPs, the, the lower the number, the higher the chance you can present a bill or motion uh, that can get passed uh, or get reviewed through the House because the government has their own bills. So as a private member, as a backbencher, you have a very limited time. So in the three elections, the first two, I always got a high number. This third time, I actually got a low number. And so I presented a motion. Uh, uh, so a motion is asking the government uh, to do something. So uh, it's, a, it's a demand for the government to either uh, review something, uh, implement something, uh, study something. Uh, so that's a motion. A bill would be something uh, where it's an actual legislation. So you're actually passing something. Uh, so you have the option of doing either of those. I picked, uh, in this case, I got number one. I was very lucky. I uh, the lotto came and I was... Uh, so it's all random. It's all random. Wow. Every time a parliament gets election, there's a random draw in the speaker's office. Uh, clerk picks them out and uh, and it goes one, two, three, four. And I think the first few times I was in like 230 or 270. <laughs> uh, so there are only really 30 or 40 uh, get the ability to actually get something that will actually get debated in the House, voted on within the kind of four years that you're there. So... And then out of them, how many get passed is probably another, only about a quarter of them ever get uh, passed. And so I've been fortunate. So I've yeah. uh, got, I had motion 44 and I was able to get that passed uh, unanimously in the house. Could you describe what that motion was? Sure. So motion 44, one of the biggest things as an MP I've seen here is every week uh, since I've got elected in 2015, I would say I would get two to three employers saying I can't get enough workers. And uh, the second challenge I'd always hear is uh, from temporary foreign workers saying, you know, the high-skilled ones, uh, they have pathways to permanent residency. Um, the lower-skilled are what we traditionally call lower-skilled, but I don't think they're lower-skilled. They, in, in the pandemic, we realized how essential and how important they were. Uh, truck drivers, uh, service care workers, hospitality workers, cashiers, et cetera, um, uh, nannies, live-in caregivers, all of those roles they didn't have a pathway or very difficult pathways to permanent residency. And I don't think they should be just uh, remaining as temporary foreign workers because once they've kind of given you four or five, six years, they really can't go back to their uh, home country because uh, they don't really have any connection there. What are they going to do? Start off there. So there should be pathways to that. So Motion 44 asks for the government to create pathways for uh, international foreign workers and international students that are here that don't otherwise have pathways and to uh, uh, create those pathways in various streams, such as the uh, TR to PR program, so Temporary Resident to Permanent Resident program, which we implemented in 2021 and had like 80, 90,000, uh, over almost 100,000 uh, uh, temporary foreign workers that became permanent residents real rapidly. Wow. So our goal is to do that in the long term. So it's uh, very complicated in terms of its uh, tentacles. Um, it's not a one fix uh, thing. It's to create permanent, uh, uh, permanent changes. It is also designed to help those sometimes language requirements become a hindrance. They, they can do the job as a temporary foreign worker, but they can't seem to pass the English language, the IELTS test to get permanent residency. 
So I've asked also that to be considered and given them pathways. So if they're lower on the language scale, but they've contributed to Canada longer, then they should get um, uh, more points or more consideration in that way. And and the government's responded well. Just uh, uh, in September, uh, right when we resumed Parliament, on the first day of resumption, uh, the uh, minister tabled his uh, his response to my motion, which he's required to do within 120 days. And they've created a four-pillar approach uh, uh, to, to deal with this. And I think the first part of that will come November 1st when we find out the levels, how many immigrants. So Canada typically picks a level. And then from there, uh, it says, this is how many immigrants we're going to make permanent residents next year. Uh, so that's currently at 434,000. I'm very optimistic it'll be drastically increased for next year. And in that increased level, that's what the minister has responded. They'll absorb these temporary foreign workers to get permanent residency. So whatever amount, whether it's 15,000 or 50,000 that we increase it by, that's where the temporary foreign workers will start getting to see permanent residency. To me, when I hear that, that's such a selfless act because you're creating better opportunities for people and not only for them, for generations to come, but with anything people always have something negative to say. Did you get any negative feedback when you put that motion through, just in general? Sure. No, it's it good. Um, to be honest with you, not much. I expected more. Um, I think the climate in Canada was very ripe for this uh, motion. Uh, our unemployment rate is historically low. It's the record lowest it's ever been. So there's nobody in Canada that doesn't need employers, uh, yeah. employees. So all every employer was desperate for workers. Um, I think Canada is a very tolerant country. So uh, and diverse, so they they didn't have this problem. Oh my God, you're bringing so many foreigners, and you're giving them permanent residency. Everybody that's worked with one, if you work at a Tim Hortons, or you, you work at a McDonald's, or you work at a factory, you know it takes a while for us to just train an employer employee, get them good at what they're doing, and then when they're producing really well, you don't want them to go back afterwards and then do the whole cycle again. So I had a lot of industry groups uh, support it. Um, I had the first call I got was from the Bloc Québécois, the, the, the Quebec separatist party, but they were also very supportive of it. They, wow. w- they were just concerned about the French language, uh, which I said, you know, we should also promote that in, outside of Quebec. And I'm just wondering why I didn't put inside Quebec and I didn't put in, inside Quebec because they run their own immigration for Quebec and I didn't want to interfere in that. So they're very pleased. They actually were the first ones to offer uh, unconditional support of uh, uh, of the bill, and then the NDP, and then the Conservatives followed suit. So, uh, no, I didn't really uh, uh, get any pushback from it. Uh, yeah. It was a very, very positive. No, I think it's positive. Like you said, the employment rate is at an all-time low. Like, people need workers. Workers, yep. Back to the motion. So if someone's trying to pass a law, is it the similar process to when a motion is being pushed through? Um, uh, similar, a little bit more extensive. I would say, for example, if I did this as a bill, the problem, if I did it too broad, to implement it would be very difficult uh, uh, because the government has to create the levels uh, in the first place. And to do the levels, they have to create infrastructure to have that many people be permanent residents of Canada, schools, hospitals, uh, English uh, language training institutes, uh, all that type of stuff, that infrastructure. So you can get as many temporary foreign workers as you want in the country. You can get as many international students. But when you make them permanent residents, they virtually have almost like citizen-like uh, rights. So to, for that, you have to build the infrastructure. So yeah. government has to do a lot of planning. So in that, if I did a, a broad bill and it was implemented in a short timeline, it would have been very difficult for the government to do and might not have passed for that reason. I think by doing it a motion, it was a bit easier. It gave the government a bit of breathing room. They can do it step by step, but they know that unanimously everybody in parliament has demanded this. A bill would be, as a few more steps, you would you'd give it for first reading in the House, it would be introduced. Then on second reading, there'd be a debate, they would have uh, uh, speeches, just like we did on motion. The only difference is then it would go to a committee, it would usually get reviewed by a committee, it would come back to the House, then it would go to the Senate, it'd get reviewed by the Senate, then it would come back to the House for a final reading. So those are the two additional steps that a bill would have as opposed to a motion. So who's allowed putting forward a new bill. Any member of parliament that's in that lottery system? Yeah, any, any member of parliament can do it, and you can do it at any time, but realistically to get it on the agenda, just because the amount of sitting hours the members of parliament have and to debate bills, because you have minimum required hours that have to be debated on a bill, 
the reality is only the top 30, 40 MPs in the lottery will be able to get a bill heard within four years, debated, voted on, studied, and brought back. So I could do one again tomorrow, but it would be after 338 ahead of me. So some people do it for the sake of just to say they introduced it, that they did a bill, might just fail, never gets to a vote, but they can say, hey, I attempted a bill. Um, But the ones that realistically have a chance, those are the ones in the high kind of, uh, for uh, you know, the top 40, I would say, in your draw, uh, they get the opportunity to do do that. Some will partner with a senator. uh, So senators have their own draw system type of thing. So you can go with them and say, hey, I'm really passionate about this. You're number 13. Would you consider doing this? And I would sponsor it in the House, you sponsor in the Senate. So that would be a bill that comes from the Senate. How long is that process then? If somebody pushed forward a bill and they wanted to see it made official? Um, so it could be as fast as, uh, as I would say, six months to a year, but realistically, three to four years. It would take that long. Just because it's priority, a private member's bill is uh, lower on priority usually in the House agenda than the um, uh, government bills. So budget, uh, uh, anything that the ministers or cabinet minister are introducing, those get uh, priority. And then the um, private members' bills kind of not lower in priority, but their slots that they have for them are a little less. So it takes a while to get to them. The reason why I asked because a week ago, my sister-in-law sent me this video and it was about this woman complaining to buy feminine products such as tampons, pads, yep. you name it. And the reason why she was complaining was because she didn't find it fair that she had to pay for them. She thinks the Canadian government should step in and create a bill or law where they're paid for. Right. What do you think about that? Do you think that could be a future law? I think, it. Uh, look, uh, uh, whether it should be paid for for everyone, no, I, I probably don't think it should be. I, but I do think it should be accessible. So for what we, you know, I think it's a term called period loss. So uh, whether it's schools or workplace uh, environments, uh, uh, the, where productivity is dropped or kids not going to school because they don't have uh, proper uh, hygiene products for women. I think in schools, it should be for free. It would be a good, I think food banks are starting to do that. I know uh, even out here, the South Asian food banks, like the Granonic Food Bank has now implemented that or implementing it, I heard. Uh, they're even thinking about doing it at some of the gorduras, for example, to, to, to do that so that no woman is, you know, uh, hindered from going to school or from going to work because of a lack of, uh, of hygiene products. So I think it should be, there should be some enactments on it. Whether we need a bill on it or not, uh, I don't know. I think in, in a general sense, I think there should be legislation, particularly starting with schools and then with employers, that it has to be available at those. No different than when you go to a toilet and you expect toilet paper to be there, that a woman should be able to expect uh, sanitary napkins for them there that are accessible for them there. Yeah, no, that's a great answer, I think. A lot of women would like that answer as well. Thank you. If there's somebody out there that knows absolutely zero about Canadian politics in general, how would you describe the Canadian political system? Uh, well, I would say it's it's one of the best systems, I will say. I, no system's perfect. Um, I would look at it as uh, when you look at federal uh, systems, the federal government's the responsibility is with the dollar, uh, with the defense with immigration policies, with trade policies. So those issues are with the federal government. When you look at uh, uh, the provincial government, they're more in terms of healthcare. Uh, Their job is to uh, um, uh, uh, implement highways, roadways, other than the ones that cross into different jurisdictions. Those are the responsibility of the federal government. Um, But I would, and then your... Uh, your most important ones are really municipalities. Like, so when you look at your city, you will realize how busy uh, and how much uh, a city is important to your life. But we vote the lowest on city politics and the highest on federal. But yeah. in your day-to-day life, city politics is, you know, where your garbage collection, it is your schools that you're going to go to school. It's the park that you're going to walk your dog in or you're going to go play yeah. soccer in, right? Uh, it's going to be the road. It's going to be the sidewalk. It's going to be the trees. It's going to be snow removal. So they control most, not controlled, I would say they govern uh, most of your day-to-day life. Uh, provincial does probably the second. And federally, because it's a, it's a federation of, uh, of provinces and territories, they kind of do the overseeing uh, uh, 
kind of uh, rolls over over and above that. So I would say that's how you could one could uh, differentiate the two. Yeah. So federally, is Canada similar in the sense to England where they follow a constitutional monarchy? Mark, yes, we do. Yeah. yeah. What right, does that so. mean? So it means we have a monarch. Uh, we recognize them as a figurehead only, uh, where they don't have an effective governmental role, but we do value the history of the monarchy. Um, there's some, some symbolism to it. Um, and so that differentiates us from a republic that has no such monarchy or lineage to it. Uh, but it also differentiates us from a real monarchy where the king or queen rules absolutely. So in our case, we make our own governance, we make our own rules, we make our own bills. Uh, and nobody owns us, even though figuratively speaking, we'll always say yeah, it's crown lands or it's... Uh, it's more symbolic. It's more symbolic, yes. Okay. Okay. So how much power does the prime minister have then if they're, if they're not the head of state, but they're a prime minister, how much power do they have? Uh, so the, the power is in terms of acknowledging all bills. It's a, it's a very rare exercise power when they would go uh, against a bill. A prime example, I think, uh, uh, in Alberta, uh, the new uh, leader and now Premier Daniel Smith, uh, she, is, she stated she's going to do a Sovereignty Act. And under the Sovereignty Act, she was going to uh um uh she was going to say she can she can ignore federal uh supreme court decisions she can ignore really? federal <laughs> which her lieutenant governor which is the queen's representative in her province and has to sign off and everything had hinted that she may not uh sign that sovereignty act if that was in case because that would be an invalid legislation doesn't it doesn't uh go by the basic principles of the Constitution of Canada uh, and, and, the, and the foundations we have. So that would have been a rare. And I think she's taken a backseat on that yeah. just the other day. She said, no, she won't challenge uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions and the others, but she'll push her sovereignty agenda, uh, you know, where any legislation that interferes in Alberta, she'll do all means necessary to create it, but she will not create it in that language that she originally, prior to winning the leadership, said. Yeah. If she did go through with it, you said she backed out, what would happen? Uh, so that would have caused a huge, uh, a huge issue in Canada, I would say. Um, it would have been uh, 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 something that Canadians uh, would look at very seriously. It would have been a constitutional crisis because uh, it would have been one of the first times that a lieutenant governor did not sign it. I'm sure the premier would say this is is wrong, but realistically, there'll be probably Supreme Court would have had to look at this to see if what the lieutenant governor did or didn't do was correct. Although the lieutenant governor would probably cede to the governor general's advice, and the governor general would uh, would give their opinion on it. And but because the Supreme Court is supreme, I'd see it would be something that would actually head to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would decide whether the lieutenant governor did the right thing, uh, or was the lieutenant governor required by precedent to sign it and let it reach to the Supreme Court before it's overturned. So the sense that I'm getting is that it's like this big circle. Canada is a representative democracy, meaning that we have these parties, we vote on them, and elect one winner. Do you think that's a good political system? Because no matter who wins, whether it's conservatives or liberal, liberals, there's going to be a massive chunk of people who didn't want that outcome, who don't mm -hmm. agree with the opposing values. Do you think that causes a further divide in the country? Um, look, uh, there's a lot of electoral systems out there. Um, the, we we explored them in 2015. Uh, uh, some thought th this one is called first past the post, uh, 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 and others have said to do proportional representation. And there's lots of different models for proportionate uh, representation. There's a, you know uh, ranked ballot systems. There's a whole bunch of different options. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, uh, it's hard to say which ones are perfect and which ones are successful. Uh, whenever anyone wants to go against proportional uh, representation, they look at Israel as being a, a model that where you're always at a standstill causing elections again because they can't get and uh, people vote ideologically exactly in the same pattern. So you know, Orthodox and yeah, everyone's uh, different. Arab, so uh, whereas and therefore your government gets always stalled and you got to do deals with. Uh, the opposition to get a governance to work. And so the, so that's a considered one that, hey, look, they have proportional rec uh, uh, representation, but it doesn't work well, so don't do it. I don't think that's the right answer. I think there is uh, a need to look at this, but 
Um, the argument goes up and down based on uh, representation in the country. I would say when you get certain regions shut out from having any representation of the governing party in that at the time, the demand for uh, electoral reform goes higher. But when you see across country representation by the party, so you might, you know, like take us as liberals, we have uh, 15 seats in British Columbia, we have two in Alberta, we miss Saskatchewan, but we have uh, four or five in Manitoba, and then we have a decent amount in Ontario, Quebec, and Atlanta, Canada. So there is no region per se, other than Saskatchewan, that would say we don't have representation in the government. We don't have a voice. When you have a whole area chunked out, like, you know, say all the prairies were not represented at all in a liberal government, they would be like, hey, our voice is not heard, and yet this many percentage of people voted for them. Uh, So I would just say the the climate for voter uh, electoral reform dries down. But when you have alienation, of one side or another, the, the demand for electoral reform goes up. How is that alienation created? Like when people uh, don't have a voice? I think it's just usually, it's usually created by different regions. You know, you look at the prairies, most of the population is rural. Rural needs assessments uh, uh, are much different. Uh, take uh, gun control for a prime example. And if you live on a, uh, in, the, in a rural setting, uh, having a rifle or having a gun is a normal thing to have because you don't have the police close by. You have uh, animals that uh, uh, that may prey on your crops, uh, so it's, it's accepted. It's not considered a oh my god. And in an urban setting, it's almost frowned upon about having a gun because nobody sees the necessity to have a gun around. Yeah, we here. have the RCMP. Yeah, you, we have, you call nine one one, and in fifteen minutes tops, you'll have an officer at your door. So, so the the same same reason to have a gun versus not have a gun is very different in rural and urban areas. So sometimes when parties only cater to one demographic, they alienate the other. So it's always uh, a a good model to always cater for everyone and try to win seats in a broader base so that you represent the entire. But uh, traditionally, parties are a little different and they cater to uh, different areas and garner votes in those areas. What are some rural areas in Canada? Uh, I would say the north, northern BC, uh, other than the kind of the the... Uh, big city centers like, say, Kelowna or Kamloops, uh, you take those out, but uh, uh, Thompson River, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Sycamus, uh, uh, Revelstoke, uh, mm. Prince George, uh, um, uh, the, the valley up, uh, uh, the Cowichan Valley in the island, those, those are what you'd call rural prairies. Most of it, other than, say, the major cities like Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Saskatoon, Regina, or Winnipeg, all the rest is pretty rural. Yeah. Uh, so a- anywhere where you have cities that are smaller than 100,000, you pretty much end up being in a rural environment, uh, I would say. And then uh, some parts of Atlanta, Canada, uh, a lot of northern Ontario, uh, and I would say north northern Quebec as well. Those would be very strong rural areas. Yeah. No, I feel like just politics in general is such a polarizing topic. No matter what side on the political spectrum you stand on, there's going to be people who don't agree with you. There's going to be people who end up hating you for sharing your opinion. Yep. And I think it's good that people share their opinions and have these healthy debates. I just feel like in today's day and age, we share opinion on such polarizing topics, whether it's, like you said, gun control, abortion, global global warming. So it doesn't matter what your opinion is, there's going to be people who don't agree with it. And here in Canada, I can see a few polarizing topics. And the first one is covid Right. Do you think COVID was handled fairly in Canada? I think. Look, if the I would say the results are in the in the uh, the results speak volumes. We uh, our COVID measures uh, from the vaccine uh, procurement. We procured uh, eight vaccines per person, more than any other country in the Western world. Uh, we did an amazing job at procuring, getting it uh, off the ground. We had the, one of the highest vaccination rates in in the Western world as well. No, really. Yep, we have over 80, uh, uh, up to 90, I think, on single shot and 80% of the population plus on on double shots. Uh, If you just look to us on terms of our our, the results compared to the U.S. on a per capita basis, so even if we reduce it by 10, we had 70,000 fewer deaths than the U.S. So if we implemented what the U.S. did, not barring any other country, we would add 70,000 more deaths. So that's that's like a 
you know, a that's football a city. field. That's a city. That's yeah. a, so we would add more deaths. You do the same. And if we implement what uh, England did, England did, I would say, I call it the light switch. It was all on and off. Whereas I would say Canada did more of a dimmer switch. So they would raise the bar when COVID would increase. And as it decreased, we'd loosen it. Um, a lot I, of people didn't like that. I'm sure they didn't like it, but, <laughs> but that was the, that reality helped us because, yeah. uh, uh, what people forget are we have a free healthcare system. And with that has a limited amount of hospital beds and a limited amount of healthcare workers. We could not afford to have it spike at where any one point, if it spiked so high, everybody got COVID real quickly. Everyone at the hospital, your death rate would have been double. Yeah. And that's where the difference you see in the U S versus Canada. So yes, it's inconvenient wearing a mask sometimes. Yes, uh, filling in a little app on a, on a plane might be a hindrance. Sometimes eating outside only on the patio versus inside in our restaurants, we had to close them down. Uh, they're short-term inconveniences, but when you look at the death toll, uh, it, that shows that it worked. Yes, sometimes there's overkill. This wasn't something that you have a, a, a playbook that you pull out. Oh, when you have a pandemic, you do A, B, C. It's really happened after 100 years. There's no modern playbook for it uh, that you can go by. So everyone had to experiment. Everyone had to quickly uh, push initiatives. Uh, procurement was a big thing. We learned that relying on foreign current countries for masks and the PPE equipment is not the smartest thing to do. Having more at home, uh, making vaccines. Canada had in the 80s stopped becoming a vaccine creator. Uh, we do research in it, but we don't actually have factories making uh, vaccines. Uh, so that reintroducing that now I think we're much more prepared if a vax if a if a, a pandemic ever happened and if a, a pandemic virus came we could create our own vi- uh, vaccines we can mass produce them and we don't have to rely on uh, the U.S. or Europe or others or China uh, for our, for our vaccines or our PPE so those are things that we learned and um, I think we did a, a fairly good job I think we have a, a a small minority that is vocal that is angry as other reasons yeah. that they were upset, but, uh, um, and they took it out in the government. And I don't have a problem with people voicing their opinions and having varied opinion, I think, but uh, keeping it civil, keeping it respectful, taking it out at the ballot poll when you have to is the way we do it. Uh, you know, attacking people, um, uh, threatening people. Doing these angry those angry, that, That's not helpful. And no. that's not a good uh, system to live in. I think that's where we need to improve our, there's lots of ways you can express your uh, democratic rights, and uh, but by swearing, obscenities, violence, uh, That's not the uh, way. Shed- is not the not the right way. My opinion on it is that it was a new pandemic, so no matter what the government did, there's going to be people who didn't like it. There's yes. going to be people who liked it. One thing that I like what you said is that we implemented these foundations now. So if a pandemic ever hits, we have the infrastructure here. Yes. What would you say to those people who are I don't even know how to say this, anti-COVID, who didn't mm. want to take the vaccine, who thought their, their rights are being disrupted because they're being forced to take a vaccine that they don't know the long-term effects on. So first of all, we never forced anyone to take a vaccine. We've, we've made it, um, um, uh, we've encouraged it. We made it free. We tell everybody to do it. People have been doing vaccines for decades. You was it mandatory go. at any no, point? So the mandatory was if you work in a federal work environment, it's mandatory if you're going to go and work because the 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 uh, safety and security of other people in that work environment depended also on everyone being vaccinated. So we were able to do that on trains and airplanes where if you're going to fly in a plane and a train, a confined space, you need to be vaccinated, especially in that peak period of time so that you're not spreading it. Again, that was the, to control the spread of it. So if you don't want to go, you can drive. But uh, if you're going to go on a plane or you're in a car, uh, you need to be vaccinated. And that was able to control the uh, spread, the international spread as well, because uh, we didn't want to, different variants coming in, doing as much control, or if they are coming in to slow it down. Uh, so those were the things. So nobody's ever forced to do it. But, you know, we've had this controls uh, for decades, if not centuries. You can't go to school if you don't have your mumps shot, if you don't have your um, uh, chicken pox shot, right? Or, uh, we get the, when you travel to countries uh, the, where there's travel advisories, a lot of them you have to have shots done before that. So we've been doing this all our lives, but obviously some people had apprehension, did not want yeah. to. And therefore, if they made that choice that they don't want to, then there's other choices where 
the government was not going to let them go on those, and that's like a plane or a train, and and on a school environment or others. And they gave options, so schools uh, you could do online learning. If it was a medical thing, you can get a medical certificate from your doctor and you exempt. But if it was just free choice, then we had an obligation, a bigger obligation, to save and protect Canadians from this virus. And the best way the scientists and the medical advisors told us was by getting a high percentage of our population vaccinated. I think that's where the difference comes. Like we on the ground level, let's say as citizens, we just see one thing. We don't mm-hmm. want to take this vaccine. We don't know the long-term effects. But as a government, you guys see the whole picture. You guys see the bird's eye view. You guys see how we need to help the whole economy get stronger and get back to regulation, get back to normal. Yeah, it's, it's look, the economy, it's our healthcare sector. Just uh, I visited our Surrey ER and the respiratory unit in there regularly during the pandemic. Uh, uh, they were overworked. They were blown away. They they were working uh, shift work. And to realize how big of a sacrifice they did, a lot of them could not even stay with their families when they went back home. So if you're a nurse working in the respiratory near, uh, uh, section or the ER section where COVID patients were coming in, you couldn't go home and hug your kid and go to sleep with your husband. You had to have a separate room because you're going at eight hours again and you don't want to infect your husband and your children because there's a very high chance that despite all the gear you're wearing, you're going you're gonna to catch it. So that's get, a yeah. big sacrifice. And when they saw people that are just because, oh, I don't feel like having it, and then they're seeing those and they see, here's a person who had a COVID shot and the severity of their symptoms are much lower. Here's a person who has no shots and they can't breathe and they're on a breathing machine and she's having to cover for that. And it would have been much easier than they could add that bed for a cancer patient or a heart patient that came in. Had they taken a shot, they do get frustrated and it is. And so as a government, it's our job to make sure that our healthcare is functioning, that those that are working in there have that, that our restaurants can open quicker. Um, that our uh, businesses can 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 open up again, and to support those businesses, to support those workers, uh, to support those healthcare. So that's where our bird's eye view uh, from yeah. above has the whole picture, not just an individual saying, "I don't want to have yeah, this." You guys are thinking about like, everyone, and yes. that, I think that's a fair answer. The second polarizing topic is the prime minister. Okay, <laughs> there's people that love him, and there's people that strongly dislike him sure what's your opinion on justin trudeau and do you think he's been misunderstood for all these years as prime minister i i think look he's one of the most genuine uh what you see is what you get person he's human he's uh not without fallacy he's and he's one of those guys who acknowledges when he makes a mistake i've never met somebody in a position uh of authority as him who acknowledges when he's wrong uh uh and then strives to do better his goal is to make Canada better and more equal and equitable uh, for everyone. Uh, he's the first prime minister who's brought in gender parity in his cabinet uh, and, and, and didn't talk about it, implemented it. Uh, he brought gender-based analysis for every bill. So now any bill, whether it's about healthcare, whether it's about foreign policy, whether it's about trade, uh, fairness to genders, gender parity, uh, an analysis on that would be done on every bill before it gets implemented. So, and he's implemented that with all his political staff, all our MPs and our political staff get the same type of training to to look at it from that lens. And it's actually woken me up a lot too, uh, personally in my life to see uh, things from a different angle as opposed to just seeing it from a, a masculine, uh, uh, one-pointed angle. Uh, you get to see things on, on the challenge that might visibly look like there's no challenge, but you realize this, these, you get a deeper perspective. perspective. Um, So I would say for minorities, uh, LGBTQ, uh, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, he's been a a pillar and a champion for them, uh, whether that ruffled feathers uh, for some other people. And I think sometimes people get, take him out of context uh, because he's doing a lot of this very fast. Um, He's been accelerated uh, getting gender parity, f- setting a feminist agenda, uh, giving equality to uh, all ethnicities, uh, you know, implementing what's in our charter already, but doing it very rapidly. So he gets, he gets pushback from a lot of people and they misinterpret him. But I think overall, if you look at it while he's been prime minister and under his leadership, um, he, he, he grew the pie in terms of services uh, for, uh, I think, 1.3 million People came out of poverty in the first five years. Uh, 1.3? 3 million, 300,000 of which are actually youth. 
uh, with the Canada Child Benefit, giving tax-free money to children, uh, helping families grow in the most vulnerable time uh, at that time, implementing $10 a day childcare. These are making huge differences. Um, uh, you know, that one brought 1.3 million people out of poverty. The $10 a day childcare will actually alter the um, pay inequity between men and women and actually make perhaps women for at a time make actually more than men. So currently, uh, w- women get are impeded because of child rearing and, and, and challenges. Uh, this will actually shift that because now you have the opportunity of having two uh, breadwinners in the house, both pursue their careers, nobody taking a backseat, and you're getting much needed childcare. And it'll help control, uh, increase our population, or at least sustain it on its own without uh, uh, immigration. Because currently, our birth rate is very, very low in urban centers. It's uh, for every two people, it's only one. Uh, mm. For nationally, it's a 1.6, and you need 2.1 just to sustain your population. So, so we're uh, under right now. We're under. We're under severe, and we're not the only one. Almost every Western country is under. We're the only one with a positive population growth because we have a net positive immigration policy where others like Italy have not and actually are shrinking in size and then they're having a huge work uh, force uh, issues. I think we've got a healthy uh, climate, a healthy atmosphere and we're doing the right thing. So those things, these are two big, big things uh, to get $10 a day childcare uh, where a family used to spend 1200 to 1500 or down to $250 uh, a month. Uh, that's putting $1,000 tax-free into your pocket. Um, so uh, you get $10 a day for... Every kid that you have? Yeah. So in British Columbia, which is the first province to partner with us and do that, um, uh, you can put your kid. So the first year was 50%. So by the end of this year, it was uh, roughly a 600 and something dollars. Uh, you get reduced on your, so instead of 12, by next year, it goes to, I think, three quarters down. And by the fourth year, it's a true $10 a day childcare. Uh, the big one we did before that, the Canada Child Benefit, was giving up to $650 for medium and low income families so that they can support their children before the 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 dollar amount that was before in the previous reincarnation gave millionaires kids money for their kids as well it was taxed so you get the money but then half of it would be taxed back so really it didn't help families as much it didn't help the people that needed, that the, needed help. It the most and you know I, I i've we also implemented the first national housing strategy it's never been done where the federal government looked at how do we address housing needs? Yes, we have a lot of expensive housing, but how do we get um, uh, housing for the homeless? How do we get senior housing? How do we get people that are starting off? So prime example, my riding Surrey Center, when we got elected, there's a street called The Strip. It's 135A. It was Tent City. It was uh, hundreds of people living in tents there uh, permanently. Uh, within within months, we were able to, uh, uh, through funding BC Housing, which funded uh, modular housing for them, we were able to remove Tent City and put them all in, in, in rooms where you have your own washroom, you have a roof over your head, a small kitchenette. And then uh, over the next five years, we built housing so that they're not just in modular, they're in permanent housing. And, you know, that's been a major shift for those. It, it costs less for the government too if they have housing. Uh, their healthcare needs and their other needs. You go to the hospital for one day, it's 2,000. A homeless person goes to the hospital because they don't have a place, a roof over that for three days. That's 6,000. That's what it would have been the cost to house them in for a permanent house for the whole year anyways. Yeah. So it's it's better. It's also better for the neighborhoods and it's uh, just the right thing to do. So those are the type of things. We've built thousands of housings. We've uh, built a plan to build more affordable rental housing. Um, just the one announcement in uh, if you recall the one uh, in Kitsilano lands on uh, the Squamish First Nations uh, uh, lands is going to be 6,000 rental units built at the foot of Vancouver, all funded wow. by the federal government through the CMHC. So it's not giving money away. It's actually just loaning the money at a lower yeah. interest rate that, that sparks a growth of a lot of uh, rental housing. It'll get much needed affordable housing in there. So these are drastic changes that I think... Uh, when you do those, you obviously ruffle a lot of feathers and there are people who, who are not liking it. But then we had COVID in between and in COVID, we assisted the economy. We assisted people first on their personal safety, second, uh, people's jobs, uh, third, employers. And if you look at our main streets, didn't get uh, closed down, bankruptcy signs at all. Uh, uh, we were able to keep businesses afloat. Uh, I still hear hotel owners, even from Kamloops, that'll call and say, thank you so much. Say, you know, we would have been done. We would have been under, but you kept us afloat. Now the economy is booming. 
and we're 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 uh, yeah. bursting at the seams. So it helped keep businesses alive, and I think uh, that's showing now. I think the public uh, budget officer has shown that our deficit's decreasing this year. Next year, we're actually running a surplus currently, but I think with all the spending, uh, uh, it'll still be a slight deficit. But the deficit is going down, and the pie, the economy, is growing quite a bit. So yeah, it's starting to work. No, I definitely agree with you. I feel like, like I said, when you're on the ground level, you don't notice all these great things. You just notice what the media pushes on you, and sure. the media builds this narrative like, "Oh, Justin Trudeau, he's spending too much money than he's earning," things like that. But you don't actually see the good things that he's doing. And a good example of that, though, so people say, "Why did he spend so much?" So we really had only a few choices at the time. We could have said the government's not spending. You got COVID. Businesses are shutting down. So people would have had to borrow either on their line of credits if they had them, uh, or they would have had to borrow them on credit cards at 20%. So line of credits, 5 6%. Uh, credit cards, 19 to 22%. And a lot of people don't have, have that. line of credits. The federal government has the lowest borrowing rate. They can borrow at like a percent, 05 to 1.5%. So the government's debt is also your debt and my debt. Yeah. And your credit card debt is also your debt <laughs> or my debt. So would you rather have the person pay, you have to pay back your debt at 22% or would you rather pay it back at 1.5%? So, you did a good so thing. that's what we did is we borrowed. Uh, we even borrowed more than the provinces did uh, so that the provinces wouldn't care because we have even a better borrowing ability than the provinces. Uh, uh, so we borrowed it at the lowest rate. So it actually cost the taxpayer the least amount to service that debt. Had we not done that, the burden would have been passed to the consumer. Those that are wealthy would have been fine. Those that are middle class that had uh, decent equity, hadn't borrowed much, they might have survived with 5 or 6%. But those that are in the, the working class that did not have line of credits, uh, they would all had to borrow on their credit cards and they would be having years and years to pay back those debts at very high rates. So I think it was the right thing to do and it was the best thing to do. No, definitely. You spoke about homeless population. You're born in Vancouver, mm -hmm. which is one of the most beautiful cities in Canada. Yes. But it's also home to one of the most controversial streets in yep. Canada and possibly even the world, East Hastings. Things, yes. Could you remember a time where East Hastings wasn't a hub for homeless people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I still remember in the 80s and early 90s, uh, me and my friends, if we went to downtown and if we went across there, yeah, you'd see the odd homeless person. You would see some people who uh, clearly had uh, um, uh, uh, an addiction issue or others, but it was maybe in the dozens, not hundreds. Uh, what I find, and, and it's not talked about as much, but I think it's the real cause of it is uh, when the closing of uh, Riverview, uh, the uh, mental asylum or hospital or whatever you want to call it in the U.S., which had several thousand patients, and yeah, there was there its own reason to shut it down. When that was shut down in the 90s, uh, late 90s, I think 95 or 96, that there was a new model, which was uh, if you have mental health or uh, mental health issues, severe ones like schizophrenia and, and others where you had to be institutionalized, you put them in neighborhoods, so in a house in, uh, you know, in, in Wally and another house in, in Newton, et cetera. But what happens is if you leave that and you don't take your meds for one day or two days, you fall prey to um, drug dealers, pimps, and others who give you different substituted drugs or synthetic drugs or whatever for your fix. And then you're gonna, it's going to be months, if not years, before you go back for help again because you're out of the system. And I think that that's where I personally saw the big change where it went from dozens to hundreds on the downtown east side. And since then, the government's subsequent provincial governments have been trying to rebuild it back, but it's, I think it's baby steps. They opened 100 rooms, another 70 rooms, 200, but that several thousand room capacity, that type of institutional capacity hasn't been built because these people need help. They, it's, no, a, it's actually a real problem for the police officers too. Police officers are not designed or trained for mental health issues. They're trained for policing and enforcement. And when they safe, have to go yeah. keep getting called, for somebody who actually needs mental health issue help, not police help, uh, it's draining on them. It's draining on the uh, person who's getting arrested because they get a revolving door in and out. Uh, what they really need is help. The other problem that I will say, uh, Vancouver and Surrey both kind of give a lot of support to the homeless. They have a lot of uh, agency, safe injection sites, housing, food, etc. But a lot of other cities in the neighborhood don't. They ignore that they have a homeless problem. 
so that the homelessness leaves uh, their neighborhoods and goes to these two epicenters. So no matter how many more rooms you create, you build and you buy more another SRO, more people come in because they go, oh, they got rooms over there. Uh, but what really needs to happen are all the cities and all the municipalities all have to step up and say, we have a homeless problem. We need to address it in our riding. We need to give them the services right here. We need to give them housing here. So it's not overbearing on just Vancouver and then second, uh, secondly, Surrey. We've even had it where different cities, I won't mention them, they will arrest them uh, or they would be, say, uh, overnight in the drunk tank, as they call it, but it might be for mental health or drug addiction issues. But in the morning, they won't release them in the city. You'll see that police car from a neighboring city come to Surrey and drop it off on the strip. Really? Yes. Yeah, so so oh. they almost offload their problems to other, to other, cities. other cities. And so that's where it's a little unfair. Yeah. So why did that big building shut down that housed all these homeless people? I, now, I was pretty young back then, so I don't know the full details. I think it was also very harsh. It was, a, it was almost like I mean, a lot of the movies are made in the, that hospital now, like it's a big movie set. Um, it was, you know, bars and like the scary psychiatric ward yeah. images that you saw in the past, which I think for patients probably wasn't the right. But what I think is the type of care needed to change, but they still needed larger facilities uh, and institutional care, not um, uh, jail-like conditions, but you needed institutional care. The model was thought to be bring them out into neighborhoods where you can um, um, uh, take, them, take care of them and kind of bring them into the normal community. I think that is a little bit of a challenge, and I don't think that's, uh, that was an effective model. It, it's a failed model. And for tax reasons, probably, cost reasons, uh, yeah. nobody wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants to build it back, but they're now doing it in small steps, but I think it needs to be done in a robust scale. But I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, yeah. so I kind of leave it to their expertise, but I think that is a big cause of those because somebody who becomes... There's also other gaps, I will say, um, I think those gaps have been mended now, but it was brought to my attention in 2015. Uh, for example, a kid who's in foster care. So the person has been in foster care up to the age of 18. The day he becomes 18 or becomes an adult at, sorry, 19, they put a suitcase and he's out the front door. But if they need social services like welfare, that takes six weeks to start. So where does this person go for six weeks? It's a long they time. Long time. So they go in the streets and they, they're vulnerable to be prostituted, they're vulnerable to the drug trade. And once they're in that, regardless if they get welfare or not, or they get a job afterwards or not, they're already in a, in a trajectory. Their, that's, their, their addiction's their, already started. Their addiction's already started. So that, I believe the provincial government has amended that so they can provide you care right away. So you have ability to transition out. But that was also another root cause uh, for a lot of the homelessness. Yeah, that's a constant revolving door, door 18, yes. 19. And how many people Turn 19, 19 and a foster, yeah, foster. Right? And you know, some foster parents, they treat you like a parent and they, they won't, they're not going to dump you just on the street because you turn mm -hmm. 19. Others, they do it as a job. They fill the job, they're contracted at 19 and after 19, you're done. So the ones that perhaps do it more like a family, family oriented type of setting, they probably help them wait the five or six weeks before they transition on. But unfortunately, the other ones might have had the next person already in. So they don't have a room for the person and they put them on the street. And before you know it, they're gone. And, and there's a big problem. So uh, finding fixes for those gaps is very important. Yeah, and the city stepped in and fixed that? Uh, uh, the province did. I province. believe the province, uh, the, the provincial NDP government did address that. My understanding is they've kind of fixed that now. They'll give a bridging kind of financing or support uh, while you, if you need to get social services, you apply. If you're getting a job before you get your paycheck, there is that kind of buffer period in there. Yeah, there's a lot of people that say, if you have an addiction, whether it's to whether it's drugs, that you shouldn't receive your monthly check. What do you think about that? Um, I look, it, it's so hard to to decide how somebody should spend their money or be governed. I mean, yeah. nobody goes into an addiction or mental health because they want to, right? Circumstances, something's happened in their life that's caused them to do it. They need help. It's a medical problem. It's not a it's not a deliberate problem. I mm -hmm. don't think anybody chooses to become addicted. I think. Uh, uh, they may have a wrong, uh, taken wrong advice, uh, had, had events in their life that, that caused them to do that, didn't have the support network perhaps. Uh, so just taking it away from them, is it? But I think having access to uh, uh, rehabilitation centers, having access to uh, de-addiction centers, having access to 
proper counseling and support is very important. And that's where yeah. I think we should decide how we should help them. Uh, and so in some cases, that would mean your check gets directed to that facility who's going to care for you, provide for you, and feed you. Uh, and and way. that way. But but otherwise, telling somebody or saying, oh, you're going to put all the drugs, they will get drugs with, whether you give them a check or not. Yeah. A person has an addiction. End up getting and, it. and then it's going to be stealing from your building or you yeah. know, taking the copper out of a parking lot or off the air cooler on top of a building. They will do it that way. So it's better to, crime goes down when people are fed, when people have money in their pockets and they can feed it, whether that's an addiction. Maybe clean supply of drugs is a is a, is a right answer. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a pretty for uh, having clean supply of prescription grade drugs, uh, so that you know instead of they're buying, anyways. they're gonna take it and they're gonna get tainted drugs. They're gonna get drugs in, with uh, with bad product in it that can. I just spoke to a mother today who lost her son because he was going to rehab. He had just finished it. He texted his boss says uh, his rehab counselor saying, "I'm rehabbing. Uh, like I've I've relapsed." I need help. Didn't get a response. The drug he took was was uh, a bad batch, if you want to call it, and OD'd uh-huh. and died. This is a person trying to get help, trying to get out, and had a bad batch. So had they been access to safe, clean supply, yeah, he would be o- addicted to perhaps opioids, but he would not be getting a bad supply whereby he gets killed and dies in overdoses. Yeah, no, I agree with you when you said addiction's not a choice because sometimes, most of the time it is in your environment, has the capability to shape and define who you are as a person. You never know where that person came, what type of environment they had to endure as a young kid. Yeah, exactly. And that yes. plays a factor into it. Well, Randy, thank you so much. You opened my eyes and all your answers are such thought-provoking answers. Here on the Four Pillars podcast, we like to end each episode with the final five questions. You can answer them in one sentence or you can spend five, 10 minutes answering each question. Totally up to you. First question is, what's your favorite book? Oh, favorite book. Uh, oh, good one. Was was the one I just read? I will say. Um, I think it was. It's an interesting one. It was called. I think it's called the Maharani's of the Court, and it was more about the women that were under Maharaja Ranjit Singh's court. Uh, it was a version that I'd never seen of the power and play that women had and their effects on. Uh, uh, on the, on a royal court and how they work despite having official, not having official roles, but how powerful they were. So that yeah. was, uh, very uh, interesting. Uh, I have to look into that one. Yes. What's your greatest fear? Greatest fear. Oh, losing. At anything? I mean, I don't have a problem losing, but you know, it's always, uh, <laughs> nobody likes losing. I yeah. would say that's a, yeah, that's that a competitive fear. mindset. Yeah. yeah. What's the difference between a liberal and a conservative? I'd say in Canada, a healthy, um, uh, traditional difference between liberal and a conservative is of uh, five degrees of separation. A liberal uh, thinks the government some needs to step in to help and support people and and places uh, 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 as uh, and safeguard them when they need the help and support and have some parameters. Whereas a conservative believes the economy or people will govern themselves and the government doesn't need much of a place in their lives. So. I'd say we're kind of in the middle. We're not as far as the NDP in terms of getting a lot of uh, implementation of of rules and and supports, but I think that's the fundamental difference between uh, between the two. Good answer. What are some values that you live by? I, I live by one is not holding a grudge. I, I don't hold grudges beyond twenty four hours, especially with family. So I try to live by that. Um, my second is. Uh, uh, always give back to the community. It's very important. Uh, as mat- uh, no matter how successful you are, um, you need to give back because uh, uh, it's imperative to improve your community. And whatever you do, uh, do your best at it. And my political thing, I've always had a uh, a motto that I would, however I take my riding, to give it back in a better situation. So everything that was in my power and control or abilities to give it better than what I'd taken it from before. So whether that's infrastructure, whether it's uh, living standards, uh, whether it's uh, educational institutes to give more uh, and leave it with better opportunities than when I took it over the term before. Yeah, perfect. What's next as a politician? I don't know. I really enjoy this. I, I love being in a member of parliament. I, I love uh, helping the citizens of Surrey Center. Uh, as long as it's rewarding, as long as I'm able to give results, I think I'll continue doing this until some other opportunity ever comes by and and I'll take that for afterwards. But currently, I love doing it. It's a very rewarding career. 
uh, and I've been able to make a difference in people's lives. And as long as they choose to keep having me back, uh, which they give me a job interview every few years, uh, <laughs> I will uh, continue doing no, this. I definitely think they will. Where can people find you at? Uh, you can find me on my uh, uh, website. Uh, you can Google Randeep Sarai. There's a few, I think, ways to get it. You can email me at Randeep Sarai, uh, randeep.sarai at parl.gc.ca. Uh, you can call our office, 604-589-2441. Uh, and I'm always available for, for meetings, uh, either over the phone or in person. Uh, when I'm here, I, I try to meet as many people as possible. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And it's a pleasure being on your show. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.